Okay, man, super fun to see you here, and um, it's kind of sad that this is the last one uh, before the break, but uh, I'll be back. I hope you'll be back uh, come January 5th on the deal. One thing real, real quick uh, that I wanted to uh, make you all aware of, uh, we're still trying to uh, get some more uh, gifts for Angel Tree. Here's, here's why, to me, this is a big deal. When I was a kid, uh, you guys know my story, my parents divorced, uh, there was a little church down the street that kind of took care of and reached out to my family. Uh, they, they would bring us uh, cans from the grocery store. The grocery store was going to throw away because the labels had come off or because they were dented. And so dinner at night was kind of surprised. You go, oh boy, you know, what is, oh, yams, you know, but, uh, but it was the care of that church that uh, helped provide that for us. The men of the church would come and work on my mom's uh, car, and probably uh, most notable was there were two ladies in that church who would rush my baby sister who was autistic so that my mom could go to church because the other six days of the week my mom was pretty much prisoner to taking care of my baby sister. And it was that those expressions, those tangible expressions of love, they first introduced a nine-year-old boy to what the church was supposed to be and the love of Christ. I think you and I get that moment at Christmas time with Angel Tree that you and I, as the body of Christ, get to reach out to families that are struggling during this point of the year and do something physical and tangible. And who knows that there's not a child somewhere who will in their hearts say, wow, that's what the church is supposed to be. And so I just want to encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to just take a look at the tags that are there, see if there's something you can do. I think this, la this Sunday is the last Sunday uh, that you have an opportunity to take a tag. But if you would just, you know, just think about that. What would it mean for you to do something that would physically and tangibly speak of the love of Christ and, and what the church is supposed to be in this world, um, be, apart from sharing the gospel, but actually sharing the love of God uh, with those less fortunate? So when he was the trees back there, if you get a chance, uh, you can go after that. All right, I think we're uh, jumping into the book of Romans. Uh, if I've got this right in my mind, we've gotten to uh, chapter 6 about verse 5. Does that sound right? Yes, no? Okay, pretty close. All right, so let's do, let's have a word of prayer for a second. want to remind you that it's fair game to ask questions, although they've got these lights blazing my eyeballs out. You might want to turn that down a little bit, but anyways, uh, raise your hand really high. We've got microphone runners. They will run microphones to you. Uh, it helps me to know where you're at uh, with your questions uh, to know where uh, we're landing the study and where we're missing maybe a little bit. So feel free to ask, and we'll do our best to answer on that. Let's pray real quick, and we'll get started. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we, we simply come to this moment. We're here because we want to know you more, and we know that you reveal yourself through your word. And so, God, we're here to study. We're here to soak in uh, what you have said to us. But, God, more than that, we're here to be changed. And so, God, would you speak to us tonight? Help me to stay on track. Help me to represent you well and to stay true to what Scripture is saying and uh, to let opinion be opinion and to say that out loud and to let fact be fact. And, God, would you just walk with us as we study tonight? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 6, starting in uh, verse 5. We actually may make some pretty good ground tonight um, because uh, some of what's being talked about comes in clumps. And so I think we have, may have the chance to actually get through a pretty good uh, chunk of Scripture. Here's what I want to do for just a second, though, is I want us to uh, kind of catch up and remind ourselves 
where we've been and um, what Paul's been doing in the course of this study. And I know I've done this a couple times. Here's why I keep doing this, and here's why it's critical. That if you and I can get a really strong sense of the conversation that Paul is having in the book of Romans, there are some chapters that are going to hit us in the new year that are some of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. Christians have argued about these chapters for literally hundreds of years. And if you and I can get a good foothold of what Paul is talking about and, and where that conversation has led, I believe those chapters suddenly become much, much simpler to land in a good biblical way, okay? So that's part of why we're setting that up. So, so far, as we've been going along, Paul has been talking to us, and, we, and as Paul has been writing this letter to Romans, at first glance, because the title is Romans, you and I might think, well, hey, wait a minute, he must be writing uh, to Gentiles, because that's who Rome would have been filled with. It would have been filled with Romans, and so this is primarily a Gentile book. You and I know that that is not completely true. Why? How do we know that this book is not written solely to Gentiles? I'm going to ask you to think now for a second. Okay. He makes a point of saying, hey, wait a minute, Jews are not justified by keeping the law. Remember that part of the conversation? Uh, there's another part where he says in Romans, hey, this has always been by faith. To which for the Jew, that was a struggle. He says, no, 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 it's always been by keeping the law. And then he goes and he gives two Jewish examples. Do you remember the two Jewish examples of faith that Paul gives? Abraham and David. And so what's happening over and over and over again as you, do, as you read the book of Romans, Paul is basically doing an, a treatise or an explanation of Christianity. That, that is the conversation. What is Christianity? And as he begins to unpack this theologically, he stops every once in a while and turns to the Jews and has a side conversation with them. Why does he have that side conversation? To show that they need Jesus, that's surely a big piece of it. They're definitely influencing the church. They're in shock. Think about this, guys. For, for nearly 4,000 years, it has been about keeping the law. And suddenly, Paul is coming in and explaining to them something that is different than what they had imagined. And he's saying, look, 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 it was never keeping the law that was actually getting anyone to heaven. It was the faith that was required when you brought that little lamb on the Day of Atonement and said, because I have violated the law, I need to make atonement. And the faith of believing that you needed a blood sacrifice, that a lamb had to die in your place, and that one day God would provide the final lamb. That act of faith is what God was looking at, not the law. The law was given to you so that you would know you were a lawbreaker and needed atonement. 
And remember, we talked about this idea that everybody before the cross was saved by hoping for a cross, and everybody since the cross has been saved by looking back to a cross. But the reality is, for all of time, everybody has been saved by the cross. Even though those before the cross didn't necessarily fully understand the cross. Okay? And so this has been a horribly hard journey for the Jews. Every time he expl- has gone a little further in explaining Christianity, the Jews said, wait, 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 wait. How, how can that be? That's not what I ever learned. That's not what they taught me in Jewish Sunday school. And so Paul has had to stop over and over again and help them along in this explanation of Christianity. So what we know is the room is mixed. There are Gentiles, and if you notice the Gentiles, he hasn't had a lot to explain a lot. They don't have a lot of questions. The reality is it's all new, and they're going, hey, this is pretty cool. The Jews are the ones that are struggling with this new idea, this new perception of Christianity, okay? So as he's done that, here we go and review a little bit. You remember that Paul begins by saying, everyone is in trouble. Remember chapter one and chapter two, he starts by saying the heathen is in trouble because he should have been able to look at creation and know that there was a God, that there was someone bigger than him, smarter than him, stronger than him, simply by looking at the things that God created. And the Jews said, yay, the heathen are going to hell. And then uh, Paul said, and you know what? The moral people, the good people, the Greeks who live nice lives and are very uh, philanthropic and are nice to people and help little old ladies uh, put their groceries into their camel bags. And, you know, whatever that is. Even those moral people are in trouble because they have violated their conscience. They know there's things they've done that are wrong. And the Jew says, yay, the moral people are going to hell. And then... Paul stops and says, and the Jew is in trouble because you had the law and yet you broke the law. And the Jew says, oh my, because I thought I was getting to heaven by keeping the law. And so in chapters one and two, Paul starts out by saying, hey, everyone is in trouble. So Paul has left everybody needing a savior. In chapter three, when you get to chapter three, he then begins to say, hey, you need to be saved. You need to somehow get rid of this guilt and this problem that you have in your life. And he says, uh, this is gonna come by faith. Okay, chapter three. The Jew, remember, gets really upset and goes, wait, 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 what do you mean by faith? I thought it was the law. And remember, then he comes to chapter four, and chapter four is when he says, no, no, no. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. It has always been faith, and he's taken this pause to help the Jew. So here we've got Abe and David. Chapter five, which we just uh, finished up. Anybody remember what happened in chapter five? Hmm. Remember he had a conversation with us about the first Adam, and what did the first Adam do? Anybody remember? He did what? He fell, 
And when the first Adam fell, who did he take with him? All of us. How did he take all of us with him? Why was Adam's fall so significant? He was, all right, we got, a, we got a microphone, because? He was our representative. He was our representative. And remember we said, hey, if anybody ought to understand this, it's Americans, because you and I have federal representatives all the time. And Adam stood in the Garden of Eden, cast his vote, which there was only one vote, but he cast it for all of us, and he cast it wrong. And you and I have been living with the results of his cast vote on our behalf. It's as if we sent him to Washington. We sent him to Eden. He voted on our behalf, and he voted badly. And he was our federal representative. But chapter 5 comes back, and the cool part about it, he says, but there's a potential to impeach Adam and choose a new representative whose name is Jesus. Jesus, who now becomes the new representative for you on the cross. But in order to get that, you have to vote for him. You got to say, I'm no longer with, happy with Adam being in office. I want Jesus to be in office and vote for me now. This is why we choose Jesus right? We're casting the new vote. And it says, even as by the sin of the first Adam, sin came on to all of us, so righteousness comes by the second Adam, if we allow him to cast our vote for us. Here's the cool part. In chapter 6, we get saved. So in chapter 1 and 2, we got lost. In chapter 3 and 4, we started finding the trail in chapter 5, we're saved. Chapter 5 is the explanation of salvation. This is critical because from here on out in Romans, salvation is done. He has gotten us there. He's explained that part of Christianity. And now he's going to begin to explain what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And what it means to get in this process of becoming obedient to him and becoming more like Jesus. Does anybody know what that process is called? Anybody know the big Bible word for that? Sanctification. Sanctification. So the rest of Romans now deals with us, now that we are saved, what do we do now that we're believers? Because we get saved in chapter 5, and now it's the Christian life from Romans chapter 6 on. So, and just so that you keep this kind of clear, the first five books or five chapters of Romans have gotten us to the cross, but now the next chapters of Romans are going to take us past the cross in this thing called sanctification. And, and just to help you understand what that, another way of saying that word is just simply saying, hey, this is that growing up process. That, that, this is the thing from going from being A baby Christian, that's a diaper by the way, um, from being a baby Christian uh, to being a fully mature Christian. It's, it's this movement or process of becoming more like Christ. All of that, if you want to call it growing up, if you want to call it maturing, if you want to call it becoming more holy in my living, I don't care. It's all called sanctification, this growing up process. And the rest of Romans deals with this for you and me. 
this is going to be a big deal later on, that you and I understand that this is the topic. Okay? All right. Here we go. We're ready. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 5. If you have been united with him uh, like this in death, remember he talked about this idea of when we were baptized, that we were baptized into, let's back it up a little bit so we get there. Okay, let's go to verse 1. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because remember the argument was, hey, wait a minute, if if Jesus covers all your sins and you don't have to keep the law to go to heaven, then why don't you just sin all over the place? I mean, you could just, you know, sin and then go, dear Jesus, forgive me, and then sin and go, dear Jesus, forgive me. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. That's not where this goes. By no means, he says, verse 2, we died to sin when we became Christians. How can we then live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in his life. So if you've ever watched somebody be baptized, you realize it's a symbol. There's symbolism going on. And the symbolism of baptism is that when we stand in the water, we're declaring without words. Baptism is a mind. You're declaring without words that Jesus lived. He's not a myth. He's not a fairy tale. He's not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He's not Santa Claus. He was real. When we place you under the water, you're saying, I believe he died. He did not swoon. He did not pass out. The medical examiner did not make a mistake. He died and was buried. And then when we bring you out of the water, you're saying, and I believe that he was physically resurrected. I believe in the absolute living Lord Jesus. Lived, died, rose again. Here he says, okay, this is why this is important. Verse 5, if we have been united with him, when you stood in that baptismal tank, you said, hey, I believe Jesus died and rose again. But he's now saying you said something else too. When you stood in that baptismal tank, you said that you were dying. You said, this is the life I used to live before I knew Jesus. I am now dying to my old way of living, and I am beginning to live a new way for Jesus. So Paul is arguing that there's two stories in the baptismal tank. Your confession of faith in Jesus and your commitment to live for him. If we then have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. He's saying, hey, look, if you and I believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you've got to believe that you and I are going to die, and one day we rise again. When does that happen? When, when is the resurrection for you and I as Christians? When? Okay. So someone give someone a microphone. When do we think that is? Either at death or at the rapture. Okay. So the rapture. So just in case there's some of us, there probably are some of us that aren't familiar. The Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, go in your Bible real quick. This will help. Go to 1 Thessalonians. So it's going to be just a little bit to the right for you. 1 Thessalonians. 
Don't go real fast because there's a bunch of small books there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. Here's what it says. According to the Lord's own words, he's saying this is exactly what Jesus taught. Uh, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And you need to know that here that that phrasing for falling asleep means they've died. But the reality is that for you and I as Christians, there's nothing more scary about dying than just simply falling asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so will we be with the Lord forever. So picture what it just said. You and I are living here on earth. Jesus comes down. Now all those who have died are called out of the grave to go meet him, and then those who are living go to meet him, and then Jesus does a U-turn, goes back to heaven with us. It's called the rapture. It's an event that precedes what next major event in time? The tribulation. When you and I, we're going to talk about this after the first of the year. We're going to do a whole series on it on Sunday. Uh, when you and I as Christians are taken out of the way, it's the moment in which Antichrist goes wild for seven years uh, called the tribulation, okay? This rapture is the beginning of that. But here's the question. So if somebody dies in Christ, do they go into soul sleep? In other words, are they laying there in the grave waiting for Jesus to come back and raise them from the dead? Okay, we have a question back here. All right, go. Who had the, who had the microphone? Well, I, I have a question. Okay. If, someone is baptized and receives Christ. Yes. And then turns away from God to their old life. And yes. And passes away. Are they forbidden from salvation? No. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Um, I don't understand baptism wouldn't be a spiritual baptism. Um, so... Right, uh, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. Why wouldn't that be part of salvation and not actually the part of, part of the physical water baptism? And then the second question is, isn't the new life now? Okay, so the first, the first question is, it wouldn't, when it's describing, hey, we were baptized to his death, be a, uh, a reference to the moment of salvation? The only reason I'm going to say no to that is, is because you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. You can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says that there's some sort of spiritual baptism at the moment of salvation. Yeah, when you look at uh, the passages that talk about, there really is only one passage in all of Scripture that talks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's actually a passage of surrender. It's a passage of lordship. It's not a passage of salvation. Because the term there, baptized in the Holy Spirit, actually says to be immersed, to be fully covered over in the Spirit. It, okay. All right. All right. So, all right. So, all right. So, some of my friends in the room who we've already had this discussion, you're gonna you're gonna let me off the hook, okay? Because I'm just having this discussion with the rest of us, real quick. The word baptized in the Bible is horrible. It is a horrible thing. Here's why. Because every other word in the Bible is translated. 
okay? It's translated. So in other words, you realize the word Jesus is originally written in Greek. It's actually the word weos. And when you get it to English, you translate it to Jesus, okay? Because the Greek word is weos. You and I don't speak Greek, so you put it in English. You put it into English for us. Um, the word oikos is Greek. When you take it to English, it's house. That's what it means to translate. We understand that right? Yes? Okay. When the Bible translators got to the word baptize, guess what they did not do? They did not translate it. The reason they didn't translate it is by the time they got to translating the word baptize into the English language, we had already been baptizing in multiple different forms. And they knew that if they translated the word baptize into the true English, it would cause just absolute controversy. So they chickened out and they did what you call a transliteration. They took the Greek word baptizo, took the O off the end and put I-Z-E on the end so they could Englishize it and gave us a Greek word, baptize. It does not, there is no word baptize. It actually means, if you translate it, to submerge, to immerse underwater. It wasn't John the Baptist, it was John the Dipper. It was John the Dunker. That's what he was called, he was John the Dunker. They transliterated a word, okay? They did it because they were scared. How many of you have been to uh, Taco Bell and seen uh, that you can order a Gordito? You ever seen that? Okay, that's a, trans, that's a transliterate. You, you realize what a Gordito is? How, how many know Spanish? Okay, what's a Gordito? It's a fat baby boy. You're going to, you're a cannibal. You're going to Taco Bell and ordering fat little baby boys to eat. This is what they did with the word baptize. They knew that there were already variant forms of baptism happening at the time. In other words, people were sprinkling, people were dipping, people were doing other stuff. And rather than face the controversy of being honest about the word, they transliterated it instead of just saying, and Jesus was dunked. Okay? So it was, it was done in fear. Okay? So when you get to the passage that says, baptized in the Holy Spirit, it just means immersed in the Holy Spirit. It just means covered over in the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And we make it into something really weird and mystical. Yeah. Um, so in the Latin Vulgate, did they transliterate it, or is it translated into Latin? No, if you go back to the Latin Vulgate, the word that you're going to find in Latin is going to be the word dunk, but it's the Latin form of dunk, right? The English word is dunk. It's going to be, I don't know Latin, but it'll be Latin for dunk. It won't be baptized. Okay, all right. So let's get back to the passage. Here we go. Uh, verse 5. Uh, if you've then been united with him like this in his death, you will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection. Oh, I remember the question we had. Do we soul sleep? Do we soul sleep waiting for the rapture? There are people or denominations or groups of people that would say, hey, you soul sleep. Do we soul sleep waiting for the rapture? Well, that's where I'm a little confused because isn't it the Bible talk about uh, being absent from the body is presence with the Lord? There no. you go. There you go. And so the answer is this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Remember the thief on the cross is dying with Jesus? Remember that? 
and he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom? Remember that? And Jesus doesn't say, well, here's the deal. You're going to go soul sleep for a thousand or two years, and then I'll come back and I'll get you out of the grave. He says, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. Okay? So it's not soul sleep. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? So we know the minute you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord. So what's getting resurrected on resurrecting day? Your body. And the really, really cool part about it is, is that as Christians, when we are reunited with our body, it gets a makeover. So I'm, I'm guessing we're all about 25. We're all in the best shape of our lives without zits, okay? So it's just, it's just a good thing. No, what's going to happen, guys, just real quick, you and I will get a body that's, that's not like the body you and I have now. You and I will get a body that's perfect in the way that Adam's body was perfect before he sinned, which was a body that did not age and did not die. It's a pretty cool day, okay? Especially for an old guy like me whose body is starting to wear out. It's a good deal, okay? So our souls immediately go to heaven. It's our bodies that are resurrected and are united in that moment. Okay, back to the passage. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Okay. Grab your Bibles again. Go with me to Galatians So it's going to be a little bit to your right. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Same guy, Paul, writing, says this about this dying thing that you and I as Christians do. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And here's what Paul's saying. Was Paul actually put on the cross? No. And yet Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. What does he mean? Spiritually, what does he mean? My old sinful self has been crucified and I've been having newness of life in Christ. Hmm. All things have become new. But here's the question. I like this idea that my old self was crucified with Christ, but the problem is I still have a whole bunch of my old self in me. So how does that work? If my old self has been crucified with Christ... How come the old self keeps hanging around? Go ahead. Although this, although this is the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it says little by little he will change us. So it's a, more of a process. A process that we would call what? 
Ah. Now it's starting to make sense. Let me ask you the question. The Romans put Jesus on the cross. The Jews encouraged it. Who puts us on the cross? Who puts us on the cross? If I am crucified with Christ, who puts me on the cross? Myself. I put me on the cross. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, guys, 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 guys. When you became a Christian, remember that promise you made on the day of baptism? That you lived this way and you were dying to your old way of life, which means that every single day you're going to take and crucify yourself. You're going to put yourself, you're going to put the old ideas, the old habits, the old way of living, the old way of thinking, and you're going to nail the old self on the cross every single day. Because, because of what Jesus did for you when he went to the real cross. And that living for him now means crucifying my old self every single day. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in that, you and I get the nutshell. We get the beginning hint of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. That every day is a death. Back to the passage. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. The answer is yes. What's the question? No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. All right. I was just going to say that uh, it's wonderful that Paul gives us the reminder that we have to daily renew our mind because it's like you're saying, it's a daily process to put ourselves. Yeah. Matter of fact, we're going to get in a chapter two, Paul's going to get to this unbelievable part where he goes, crud. The things I want to do for Jesus, I keep blowing it. And the things I promised myself I would never do again, I do them again. And this is really, really hard. And on the one side, that's kind of discouraging to hear because the best Christian who ever walked the face of the earth is telling me it was really hard. But the other part of it is I go, okay, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this is a struggle for all of us. Maybe that's what this is. It is this daily crucifying myself. And maybe it is just absolutely hard work to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's great. It's, we'll get there maybe, maybe even tonight if we get far enough, but not at this rate. You're slowing me down. Okay. <laughs> All right, verse 7. Because any, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. No, death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he now lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. And don't you love that phrase? Count yourselves. He's saying, hey, this is, you aren't feeling the full effects of this yet. We feel the full effects of this death to sin when we get to heaven. Right now, we're in this thing. 
you and I are in this thing that is post-cross for you and me, that is sanctification. We're in this process of growing daily to be more like Jesus. But the reality is we will not be done with the old man. We will not be done with the old nature until we get to heaven. That is the final work of Christ on our behalf is that we are then fully sanctified. There's actually denominations out there, I won't name any names, um, but uh, that actually teach that you can be sanctified this side of heaven, that you can actually reach sinless perfection and not sin anymore. And then you ask me, you say, well, you know, what happens if you cuss after you reach sinless perfection? Well, that was a mistake. It was a sin before sinless perfection, now it's a mistake. Yeah, it's a mistake. You will never be sinlessly perfect, okay? Just take it from me. Take it from a guy who's been trying for the last 50 years. You won't make it, okay? But the command is that you and I strive for it, that you and I live every day trying to live for Jesus better than we lived the day before, that every day we become more Christ-like in our walk. I once heard a guy say this. He said, when I go to heaven, I want to be so close to Jesus that the change doesn't have to be very big. How cool would that be? How cool would it be to, when it's finally time for you to go to heaven that you go, hey, the change doesn't have to be that significant because I lived the way that Jesus wanted me to live. I lived that close to him. That'd be a pretty cool day. It is this thing of sanctification. Back to the passage. Verse 11, in the same way count, decide, make this decision, die daily, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. You get that he's saying you're going to face a choice over and over and over again. Do I go back to living the way that I used to live, or am I going to choose this day to live in Christ? Am I going to live like a follower of Jesus? And he says, you realize that now that you're in Christ, you will decide this a million times. Every time you're tempted, every time you want to gossip, every time you want to get angry at the person who cut you off, every time a friend betrays and you decide you want to whether or not to be hateful or not in that moment. You will decide a million times, do I go back and live the way I lived when I was a slave to sin? Do I choose to live this moment in Christ, crucifying my old self and living in the new life? Verse 13, do not offer up your parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as these, those who have been bought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. He says, guys, when you get this, following Jesus makes a ton of sense. When you were when the Jews were under the law and they were trying to keep the law, what was the motivation for keeping the law? 
What, why did you keep the law when you were under the law? All right, let me say, that's, I'm not asking it very well. There you go. The motivation for keeping the law was, hey, as long as I'm not, when you're driving down the freeway, um, how come you obey the speed limit? Well, that's not a good example. How come you don't go more than 15 miles an hour over the speed limit? <laughs> what keeps you from going 40 miles an hour over the speed limit? The law. And the law inspires what? Fear. Fear that that police officer is going to see you, pull you over, write you that $100 ticket, right? So the motivation from the law was fear. That's why you kept the law. He says here, look, look, look. Don't sin, not because you're under the law. This isn't about fear. He says, don't sin because you're under grace. Grace brought you and me forgiveness. Matter of fact, remember earlier in the passage, it said, hey, wait a minute, shouldn't we sin? I mean, isn't it okay? Couldn't I just sit there and go, hey, I'm under grace now, so I can just go sin. I can sleep with my girlfriend and then go, dear Jesus, please forgive us, and I'm forgiven. You know, I, I can go out and get falling down drunk, and then I can go, dear Jesus, please forgive me, and I'm forgiven. I can beat my kids. And they go, dear Jesus, forgive me. I'm forgiven. How cool is that? And he says, no, 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 no. That's not how we live the Christian life. Why? Why are those of us who are under grace not going to live our Christian life taking advantage of grace? We need a microphone. Because we're a slave to, because we're a slave to doing the right things now, instead of being okay. a slave to sin. When I was a slave to the law, I was born a slave. Oh, okay. All right, I'm going to go there for a second because this is a cool illustration. All right, think about this. You and I were originally. Okay, you're interrupting me. No, okay, all right, so hang on a second. Hang on a second, because this is cool. I like this. I don't know if you'll like it, but I like this. Okay, think about this for a second. When you and I were born, we were born slaves to sin. Why were we born slaves to sin? Because of Adam. Adam made the bad vote. We were all born broken. The image of God was marred and disfigured in our lives. We were born slaves to sin. We chose to be slaves to righteousness. Here's where this gets cool. Within Jewish law, when you had a slave, you could only have a slave for six years. On the seventh year, you had to release him. It was just law. You had to do it. And here's what you need to know before you get all freaked out and weirded out. Slavery in this context is not like the slavery that you and I think of in colonial times where they're going over to a country, taking people hostage and bringing them back to pick cotton. It's not what it is. It's actually closer to employment. Uh, you would go to someone and you'd say, hey, uh, I don't own any land. Can I work for you? Can I be your slave for six years? And then would you give me a little piece of land over here, a little corner that I can now farm and have as my own? Got to remember, there's no industrialization. It's all farming. And so you would contract to be someone's slave. 
for a period of time, and then they would pay you by probably giving you land or giving you their daughter in marriage or whatever that other thing on the end of the contract was. You and I were born slaves to sin. The contract ran out. And what you could do at the end of six years is you could say, I so love being with my master that I choose to be with my master for life. I don't want the release after six years. And in that moment, they would make you a bond servant. They would take and poke a hole in your ear. They'd hang an earring off of it. And it was a designation that you had chosen freely to be a bond servant, a lifetime servant to your master because you loved him. When you and I became Christians, we chose the new master. We offered ourselves as bond servants to him because we loved him. What's the motivation under grace? It's no longer fear, it's love. See, I don't, I don't not do sin because I'm afraid of the spanking. I don't do sin because I love my Lord and I would never want to hurt his heart. See, I, I don't not do sin because it's not fun. I don't do sin because it would disappoint my heavenly father. And I've chosen, I've chosen to be a bond servant to him. Question, yep, that was cool for me. I hope it was cool for you, all right. Well, all <clears throat> I was gonna say is uh, you don't continue on fast and loose in sin because you'd be mocking Christ's sacrifice. Yeah. No, I love that too because think about this. Every single sin you committed, Jesus felt on the cross. You realize that, right? See, the thing that was painful on the cross was not the nails. It was your sin. And he felt every sin that you and I committed. Matter of fact, remember the plea that Jesus does on the cross. He says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? And that, that does, that's, not, that's not saying, hey, God, you know, why have you been mean to me? Or, you know what he's saying? For the first time in my eternity, because Jesus is eternal, for the first time in eternity, I have felt separation from God. I felt like it, what it feels like to be human and be separated from God. And what caused that pain? Your sin. My sin. Which means every time you and I take grace for granted, we go, oh, I can just do that. I can just do that sin, and then I'll ask Jesus for forgiveness. You realize it's like we're going up and tagging another nail? We're putting additional sin on the cross. You might as well walk up and spit on Jesus when you frivolously sin saying, oh, but grace will cover it. There's nothing that you and I as Christians could do that would be more disrespectful to the death of Jesus than to say, let's just heap some more sin on him. No wonder, Paul says, by no means, once we come to Jesus, would we go on sinning with this idea that grace would cover it all. Not if we really loved. We'd never make the cross worse. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus gave us an example for that too in John chapter 14 verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Mm. 
my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, sometimes, you know, you meet somebody, and, and remember the question over here was, what if someone comes to Jesus, and then if they go and live a horrible life, and are they still a Christian and stuff? You and I never know for sure if somebody's actually a Christian. Only God knows that. But there are some hints in the Bible that you and I can look at because you and I have the freedom to be fruit inspectors. And uh, one of those hints is that suddenly um, I become obedient to the Word of God. The Word of God changes uh, its effect in me, and I begin to start obeying the Word of God. And if you think back about it, when you, before you came to Jesus, someone would say, hey, you know the Bible says that's wrong, and you go, oh, yeah. Because you were pre-Jesus. After you came to Jesus and someone goes, hey, you know the Bible says it's wrong, and you go, I know. <laughs> what changed that? The Spirit of God living in you. And when you get to that side of the cross, your relationship with the commands of Jesus changes. And it's one of the identifying marks that someone really has experienced a relationship with Jesus. Uh, the Bible also says that it's impossible for me to hate the body of Christ, to hate other Christians and be a follower of Jesus. If you say that you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says, and you hate Christians, you hate other followers, he says, you don't know me. So all of a sudden, this relational thing that happens in the church and this connection with other believers, have you ever done that? You ever been out somewhere, maybe you're on vacation, or you're going somewhere, and you happen to be standing in line with someone, or you get on you know, a trolley car with someone, and you start talking, and all of a sudden, you realize they're a Christian, and immediately you feel a bond to them? You know why that is, right? Because that's your brother or sister in Christ. And that bond is real. It's a mark that you've actually come to know Jesus Christ. The third mark that you've come to know Jesus Christ, spankings. Spankings. Because Hebrews chapter 10 says, whomsoever the Lord loves, he spanks. And if you have somebody who says, hey, I'm a Christian, and lives like the devil, and never gets spanked, you have every right to say, hmm, I don't know if you ever came to know Jesus because he ain't spanking you. And Jesus don't spank the neighbor kids, but he spanks his own. And so why aren't you getting spanked? Okay? All right. Where are we at? Ten minutes? Ten minutes. All right. I thought for a minute there, I thought you were saying 40 minutes. But okay, ten minutes. All right. Okay. All right. We'll get back. All right, let's go because you guys are slowing me down. All right. Here, here we go. Here we go. You guys are saying you're chasing rabbits, land. They're good rabbits, though. They're good rabbits. All right. Back to the passage. All right, verse 15. Here we go. We've already been talking about this a little bit. What shall we say then? Uh, shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Remember, slaves to sin, and then this bond-slave idea of coming to Christ and saying, I'm your slave for life. But thanks be to God that, through, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have now become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now you should offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. 
Watch this, verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap from that time that you now are ashamed of? Isn't that an interesting question? Why is it that as you and I come to Christ (laughs) and that way of living before we met Jesus was so broken? I mean, isn't it true that one of the reasons we came to Christ is because we tried everything our own way and we lived the way our neighbors were living and we did uh, what we saw others doing and it was leading us nowhere. There was nothing but emptiness and brokenness in us. And part of coming to Jesus was saying, hey, when I'm in control of me, I make a mess of me. And I need help. And we came to a cross and said, God, would you take the crumbiness of my life, the emptiness of my life, and would you change that? And he's saying, why would we want to go back to that slavery? What, what is it that would ever attract us back? Don't you remember the results of that? Don't you remember where that got you? And how incredible is it that Christians, that you and I, somehow still stay attracted to that old life that brought us nothing but misery and death? Why would a Christian ever go back? And I think it's because we have spiritual Alzheimer's. And we forget. We forget what that was. And I'm just going to tell you guys, I think one of the most powerful things you can do is to spend a few minutes in your life and go, where would my life be if I had never found Jesus? How would I be living? What would my relationships be like? How empty would my soul be if I'd never met Jesus? Because when you remember that, then this whole idea of following Jesus makes a lot more sense. And I don't know about you, but when I think about where I could be without my Jesus, I tell people all the time, I go, you know, I'm, I'm probably the most... I'm the most unreligious pastor uh, you will ever meet. I'm, I'm not a guy who just went, well, you know, let's seek God, and I want to be a goody good. I, I'm the most unreligious pastor. I'm the guy who ran from God. I'm the guy who hated God. I'm the guy who, when God finally got a hold of my heart, it was so real. It was so transforming. I couldn't shut up. I couldn't not tell what I had found that was real. Why would we ever go back to that? That's death. And I will not, I will not be a slave. Therefore, I do, and we all should do what Paul said. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by faith for the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so every day, every day, every day, every day, 
we crucify the old man so that we can live as the new man. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we, uh, we simply come before you tonight. And God, we just want to say it out loud. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that in that moment you took every one of our sins and placed them upon yourself. And now we live as slaves to righteousness. And we will not, we will not, we will not go back to the old way. We, we will not disobey. We will not heap even more sin upon you. We will not despise the sacrifice you made for us. We will live as slaves to righteousness every day of our lives. And our heart's desire is to become more and more and more and more like you that one day when we go to heaven, the change will not have to be very big. To this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see you after the first of the year. It's been fun. Thank you for being here.